if you could uh... Houston we have a problem good morning Murray Walker welcome to the show thank you it's great to be here I came to the first one and I've been to all the other six we're sorry, the number you have dialed is not in service at this time. Like the heart rate is skyrocketing. Gentlemen, start your engine! Good afternoon, radio. For those who don't know, Radio Hotler, thanks for coming and making time. It's on everybody's mind. For those who don't know, there's a big shebang. Sorry about that. Sorry, my little uh, um, uh, technical goodies. Radio hot, 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 Good evening, viewers from the Southern Hemisphere, and good morning from the Northern Hemisphere to Radio Hotline, episode 249. That's the second last episode in the history of Radio Hotline. Uh, the finale will be coming up soon, and as you can see, with 249 uh, tonight here with me, uh, there is no JP, uh, but in the Northern Hemisphere, Hemisphere is the folks coming in from 25 minutes out of Heathrow. And it would be wrong of me to ask what you're having to drink this morning, folks. Or, or, or is it? Good evening, Johnny. Good evening, viewers. It's not what you're drinking, I'm sure. It's uh, morning here in London, so I'm just having a coffee. So, how are you? How's the weather down there? It's... Uh... <laughs> You prick. In you, your you in your T-shirt. Yeah, I can see that, that grin on your face. The lack of shaving activity indicates that... Weather, What's it called? A, weather a city is, grin. Weather is, uh, is happy. It's good, happy weather where uh, the Boris lives. Yes. He's a humorous bloke. It's, it's been a bit cool, but it's... Well, I don't know if it's warming up today, but it's muggy anyway. It's a bit humid. What about Boris? He's a bit humorous. Have you seen him tiptoeing around town with an umbrella or something? Or? No, not directly, but he's really out of the headlines here. And um, while he does cast a bit of a buffoonish figure, he's actually a very effective mayor of London, surprisingly. <laughs> yeah, gets stuck in. But, um, yeah, he's a bit of a lunatic. I'm sure he's not that good at getting the traffic circulating around the... the the Hammersmith Roundabout. It's a nice well, park in the middle that, there. That's beyond beyond anyone's um, <laughs> ability to sort out, I think, really. The traffic in inner and central London is uh, chock-a-block. Now, speaking of coffee, did you remember to take a, like an emergency stash of your favourite with you? Or have you been resorting to... Uh, unsavoury packets delivered under the door. No, no, I was able to find the coffee that I like in the United States more often than not. And over here they have proper coffee anyway, so it's not a real problem. Well, it's pretty hard to find good coffee in America. Well, in terms of the coffee that we like back in Australia, yes, but... I'm a rare creature that I actually like American-style coffee, particularly Dunkin' Donuts coffee, so I'm not too badly off over there. But that's just me. I'm weird. And free Wi-Fi, so, I mean, what's not to like? In most places, not all. Oddly, the, the more expensive the hotel, the more more likely you are to pay for Wi-Fi in the States, whereas you go to the budget hotel, then it's free. Very weird. So your sojourn, your traditional escape the cold moments of Australia and all the political clattering that's been going on here, although I do have something to say about that maybe a little bit later, um, started, I think you went off to, to Austin. No, you went for a little whiskey tour. Are you... Was it interesting? 
my visit to uh, Jack Daniels in Lynchburg, Tennessee. Um, it would have been interesting if it hadn't been all day. I mean, there's only so much you can look at a, a, a whiskey factory and, and, actually, and not get a drink either. That was the ultimate... What do you think Tony Quinn would have said? The whole day there and um, no Jack Daniels to be drunk, which was strange. I mean, Lynchburg is it's actually a dry town, so you can't actually buy alcohol there. Um, you can buy Jack Daniels in their little shop, but only because they pass it off as you're buying you know, collector's item bottles rather than the, the alcohol. It just happens that the bottles come filled with Jack Daniels. So, yeah, it is interesting, you know, to see how they do it, although for a company that claims that they're making it to the original traditional method going back to the 19th century with um, that Jack himself, um, Jack Daniels, concocted, um, you hardly see any people actually making it. It's all machines. So, you, um, as I said, that was an interesting visit, if if a little drawn out. And the next day we went to Smyrna, outside of Nashville also, and had a look at Nissan's factory there, which a factory tour normally you'd say, kill me now. But it was pretty interesting just it's how huge it is. I mean, it's so long that from one end, there's a big long corridor, from one end you can't see the other end. That's how big it is and how long it is. And they're pumping out Altimers and some other Nissan models furiously there, you know, they, I don't know, some strange figure, probably they make more in a week there at that factory than Nissan Australia sells in a year. Did you? So that, that, that killed a couple of days before we went to Austin and watched the V8s at the Circuit of Americas, which was relatively successful. Did you uh, get to have a, a little game of dra drafts, perhaps, with, with Melbourne Rutledge at... Uh, Jack Daniels. Uh, did, uh, no, we didn't. Did they have a nice lunch or anything? Um, they did have a, a lunch at a nearby, well, it used to be an old guest house, which Jack Daniels took over, and we had traditional southern fare. And that was interesting. About the only thing we didn't have was possum pie. If that had been put in front of me, I wouldn't have been surprised. So let's just say southern-style food is an acquired taste. Right. Like roast chicken, like like southern fried chicken and grits. Is it sort of well, like grit, Beverly Hillbillies? Yeah, grits, grits certainly. Uh, you know, southern fried chicken would have been the good news. Can you uh, explain what grits actually no. is? No, I can't. <laughs> it's a traction and I'm not, I really want to. It was quite strange. I mean, you, you're heading into, it's not the deep south, but you're certainly, you know, in Tennessee, you're in the south and at the Jack Daniels. Um, visitor centre, there's a little path that wanders across a creek and you can and right into the town. And um, I wandered out just to have a look. And just across the way was, well, honestly, it was like something out of the Beverly Hillbillies. It was this, you know, big rambling old shack. And if Granny had have been sitting out on the porch on a rocking chair yelling at Jethro, I wouldn't have been surprised at all. <laughs> Whitland. Whit Whitland, you know. Oh, Whitland, yes. Yeah, no, again, wouldn't surprise me, but funny little town, you know, very typical American country town and um, dominated by a big square and the, the biggest store, of course, in Lynchburg, where you can't buy alcohol or consume it, is um, a Jack Daniels merchandise store and what you can buy branded by Jack Daniels. I mean, it's nobody's business, everything from... Well, basically, mugs and cup and coffee mugs to um, Harley Davidson motorcycles and Ford trucks and everything, apparel-wise and kit-wise, in between. They certainly know how to um, milk the brand, and they get something like oh, I don't know. It's like quarter of a million, three hundred thousand visitors a year to Jack Daniels to the visitor centre to have a look around. The business in itself. But that's a bit like what I found when I went to uh, Golden in Colorado to the Coors Brewery. It's a similar thing. But there was a tasting scenario, uh, and yeah. it didn't take all day, but they were getting, you know, as, as, volume, as much volume as that, a, a town that, that was built around the brewery. Yes. So Anyway, I've done it, and glad I've done it, but 
No, no need to do it again. <clears throat> All right, so moving on to Texas. So, how'd it go? Well, we've all read the reports, but mm. what was the vibe? I mean, it, blah, blah, it blah. It went well. There was a good atmosphere and a good vibe there. You know, there were people, spectators there. That was, you know, a big step forward from previous international forays to Bahrain and Abu Dhabi and China. Um, so there was a real sense that there were some people interested. Um, were the crowds as big as they were claiming? Um, you know, 68,000 odd over three days. I think that's debatable, but that's probably not not the point. The point is that it was a you know at least a decent start in terms of attendance, and they have something to build on. So it looks like it's worth the Vats going back there again next year and subsequent years and trying to to build a following there. You know whether it will ever be a a big following, whether they'll ever have big big crowds at the track to see the Vats. Um, that's probably a stretch, but you know it's by by far it's the most successful. Um, international meeting and uh, the town of Austin, I've got to say, people knew it was on and there was a bit of interest in it among the locals, even if they didn't flock to the track. But there was awareness that there was this Australian race series in town and uh, they, you know, you bump into people and they found out why you were there. They, they seemed generally, genuinely interested in it. So, um, you know, it was a promising start. So after the disappointing um, you know, the food perhaps down south. What was it like in Austin? Because from the reports I'd heard, it, you know, Texas barbecue was everywhere, and and, uh, and I did a little bit of research, and it, it, pretty much everyone was going yum yum yum. But then you know, you you wonder whether the drivers could themselves actually get into that. Probably not. Austin itself is a really nice city. I didn't get to see anywhere near as much of it as I would have liked, but it's you know it's a famous it's famous for live music. It builds itself as you know the live music capital of the world. Um, there's a lot of culture there. It's a great city for going out and, and eating, and you don't have to you know eat um, barbecue. I mean that's a staple in the area, but you know it had a, a very broad variety of restaurants. So you know. I'd like to see more of the place. I think it's you know it's a it's one of the more European style cities that you'll find certainly in the southwest. <laughs> you know, I mean, it stands out on its own in Texas, that's for sure. From accommodation uh, perspective, um, was that easy? And and what's the travel time from where you everyone would typically want to stay and be able to enjoy the nightlife and get to the track? Easy to get to the track, you know, mindlessly easy. Just up the road, you turn onto the freeway and just follow it until you turn off to get to the track. So it's probably, you know, no more than, you know, half an hour. I think it would be a lot longer than that during the Formula One Grand Prix because traffic could be a real problem getting them in and out of the track or, in fact, not much traffic is allowed into the track itself. They tend to do a park and ride, but um, it wasn't a problem at all. But it's easy to get to. It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere, which is probably the point. It's the only sort of... They managed to find the only bit of ground that's actually got some, you know, elevate never-ending plains that, that surround it. But um, the track is quite extraordinary. I mean, it is a marvellous facility. And that um, hill up into the first term, which is the signature of the track, you know, is way steeper than you can you can tell from television. I mean, it's I, it's a very steep climb. I'm I was I was absolutely sure that that was the case when I'd seen the 3D data that Herman Tilke had had made public for the uh, for it. Uh, and in fact, it, at the time, it didn't show the direction, and I actually assumed the direction was was clockwise, not anti-clockwise. Um, yeah, it looked like it was a pretty a pretty tight scenario. But we watched it like a, a, a quite a good race last year. There was the thing it was the, <clears throat> the penultimate uh, Formula One race there, and uh, uh, watching it on V8 supercars. I don't know if it's uh, watching V8 supercars there. I don't know if it's like the unfortunate time, which can't really be changed much, whether you're a little bit dopey or not less interested. Um, it, it felt like everything was happening a little bit more processional, a little bit more in slow motion. I mean, they built a beautiful track, 
but um, do they just does it really need faster cars on it to make it more action? The short course that they used, which sort of cut out a big section of the back of the track, didn't really do the V8s any favour. It sort of, you know, squeezed them and funneled them down into this, you know, these tight, twisty sections. And most of the drivers, if you can go by what they say, seem to think that the racing, um, and certainly from their point of view, the challenge of the circuit would have been better if they'd used the whole layer. And it seems to be that there's an argument for doing that, using the whole track. Well, that would have condensed the crowds, wouldn't it? Off tyres. Condense the crowds. It what, sorry? It would, by, by having the short track would mean that you would be condensing the crowds. And also, you know, how do you... But Well, there is that, but, you know, it's not an insurmountable thing, but they'll probably look at it for next year. But, yes, I mean, VA's traditionally like a shorter circuit just to keep it looking busy. The race has got better... As they went on, you know, the last couple were quite eventful, you know, if not ex exciting battles for the lead. Um, but I think with this, you, if they use the soft tyres, which they're talking about doing next year, that will that will spice things up as well. I don't think they'd have any, you know, wear issues. So overall, you know, certainly it was, you know, worth going there. But there was a bit of a uppity uppityness there from from the chin. He got he got a bit, you know. A, a vocal about what he felt was undue this, that and the other thing? Well, Jamie Wincup, yes, he feels very hard done by because he was docked points along with Coulthard and Lowndes, you know, for um, the messy restart. Um, and he's been whinging about that. Uh, so I see all but, during the day. But, 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 but he is part of Red Bull. So that's sort of consistent with the brand. Perhaps that's part of the deal, you know, that Dietrich would probably go, look, you know, if it's not going your way, stamp your feet. Well, that's where Craig Lowndes is the odd man out, isn't he, there, in that lineup, Ever cheerful and positive and, and, as we saw on the weekend, still winning races. Jeez, oh, I wish someone would give him a Botox shot that he'd stop smiling. <laughs> Just sort of like, will you stop it? He's a happy man. I know, but... It's just this. Yeah. Still got it. Yeah. So, there you go. So that was Austin, and from there we went on to the Indy 500, which you all know about. It was an incredible race and a very popular result with Tony Canaan winning. But it was, as usual, you know, the or one of the greatest events, if not the greatest event in motorsport. Um, although I think Le Mans might be challenging it from next year when. Uh, the well, race starts. Before we get on to Le Mans... A lot of manufacturers again. Before we get on to Le Mans, um, mm. let, let's, let's, let's go back and a couple of years ago, uh, I was there with you at uh, Indianapolis 500, which was touted as the 100th anniversary, whilst it wasn't the 100th event. Um, you know, it, I actually felt that it was a relatively, um, you know, serene 500 compared to to what I'd seen and all the smashes and this and that up, and up until the very last minute, which, you know, as we know, where J.R. Hildebrand, like, lost it in the last corner and Dan Weldon kept his pedal to the metal and, 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 and you know, snipped him to take the win just like that. Um, perhaps that sticks more in the mind on the basis that, you know, poor Dan lost his life in Las Vegas a few months or later in the year. What... Mm -hmm. Can you can you can you give me a, a you you've done a few more than me but from an excitement point of view can you can you can you rate the last couple of years? Uh, they've been two of the most exciting Indianapolis 500s ever. I mean, the switch to the new car um, has meant that they can run in packs safely, and drafting is a big thing, um, and so they're lead swapping all the time. You might argue it's a bit artificial, but it is what it is, and it's made both races very exciting. You had, you know, I mean, it was 68 lead changes or something during this year's event, and last year it was very exciting, and then the excitement right on the final lap when, you know, Takuma Sato tried to yep. fling himself down the inside of Frank Kitty going into turn two, and that didn't work. But he um, had to give it a go. This year it was a big battle between, you know, 
many cars all the way. And as I said, with Canaan winning, it was an extraordinarily popular result. So it was um, the last two because of the switch to the new car, which, as I said, they can run close together and slipstream each other. Um, it does promote a lot of passing. After Indianapolis, back to Detroit for and what I thought was a very, very interesting uh, IndyCar race there. In fact, probably even more exciting in some it respect. It was certainly action-packed, and you mentioned J.R. Hildebrand before. Well, he crashed early in the 500, and Panther Racing just lost patience with him, so they sacked him and brought Ryan Briscoe in as a substitute, and Briscoe will do some more races for Panther um, later in the year. He... he he actually did Milwaukee as well last weekend, dashed back from Le Mans. Um, but, yeah, the Detroit Grand Prix, it, it potentially is a great event as well. You know, it's, it's, it's got a street race festival feel. Um, it just, uh, I don't know, it needs to become part of the fabric, the sporting fabric of, of Detroit. It's strange that in the Motor City, you know, motorsport is not that big. And, you know, there's no permanent, you'd think, you know, the absolute home of them of the car in the United States would have had for decades a permanent circuit nearby. Well, it never has. You know, the closest permanent circuit is Michigan International Speedway, which is a couple of hours out in the Irish Hills. Um, so... Are we talking the same circuit, folks, that F1 used to race on? Which was no, very, was very left-right, 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 yeah. under the bridge, round that the was tower. That town street circuit under... Yeah basically around and underneath the Renaissance Centre, the Rensen, um, and then Champka or Cart took that over and then they moved to to Belle Isle, which, you know, again, is a, a beautiful location that's been let run to rack and ruin over the years, like most of Detroit, downtown Detroit itself. And But with the money and the, the promotional muscle of Roger Penske, whose businesses are based um, near Detroit, um, they're gradually cleaning up the island and um, they restored the track to its full length and resurfaced a lot of it this year so they didn't have any of the nonsense of last year of the track breaking up or, or it being unnecessarily bumpy. So they're making progress. Whether it, it ever becomes sort of an iconic event in Detroit, I, I have my doubts, but, you know, it has the potential to be. And, um, you know, it's certainly the, the IndyCar racing itself was um, eventful, and interesting, we had, you know, a couple of different winners in Mike Conway and Simon Pagenaud. Will Power had a horrendous time, although he did make himself a YouTube hit once again by... Uh, There's a glove slap. Yeah, and mouthing off at Sebastian Bourdais, but, you know... Well, there, what do you do all day? Yeah, it goes back to champ car days, of course. They're not good friends. So, yeah, it was, it was an interesting weekend as well. And... Some more time in Detroit, and then here I am in London getting ready to go to Le Mans. Oh, you didn't go to Canada for the F1. I thought you were going to do that. In the end, I didn't, no. Yeah, right. So you just hung out with, with, with Angry? <laughs> yes, with my friend and colleague Mike Brudenell, oh, the most sports writer of the Detroit Free Press newspaper. Yeah. Helped him out at the race, in fact. And you became and a bit of a video star. And we, um, yes, we did online videos for the <laughs> Free Press's website which um, were long on um, wit and humour, I like to think, but they were certainly very short on production values. You know, they were just shot by the intern on, on an iPhone. And, you know, while the quality wasn't bad, um, the acoustics left a lot to be desired. But that's the facilities we had to work with. So um, we had to do our little double act under those circumstances. So there you go. I mean, that sort of you know, internship behaviour would be the sort of thing that would drive you straight to a bar to order a plate of perhaps between six and seven heat rating chicken, buffalo chicken wings with an ashtray alongside. I mean, it's... And, and, and fuck the celery sticks off. Chance would be a fine thing where the ashtray is concerned. You can't smoke in bars anywhere pretty much anymore. Well, you can't in Detroit anyway, and even in Indianapolis it's no longer allowable or not about, in central Indianapolis. What about Rick's Boathouse? Did you go down there to see if the thing was fixed? Because the last time <laughs> yeah. we went there, there was a bit of smoking. Yes, 
that's when they had the fire and had to clear the place out when we were there. No, it's all fine. And, but it was a cold night when we went and there weren't many people around. So um, you can still smoke outside, of course, but it was too cold to do it. The, the, the weather in Indianapolis and Detroit, I mean, in Austin, it was stinking hot, but dry heat, so it wasn't too bad. It's not as humid as you might expect, but Indianapolis and then again, Detroit, the weather was all over the place. It could be quite warm, but very humid or it got, you know, pretty cold. I think the race itself was one of the coldest in years in terms of, you know, track and ambient temperature and a huge amount of rain, oh, rain so much in Detroit. They were lucky with the, with the Grand Prix. It missed the rain just, but they had a beautiful, you know, Sod's Law, the Monday after the race, was perfect weather for racing, you know, sunny, warm. Sorry, one, can, one, two days. Can, can, do they call it, do Indy call it a Grand Prix? Yeah. yeah right, okay, it's not, it's not a, it's Prix, not a not, Bernie trademark. It's, you can't trademark Grand Prix. It's been used right. across a wide range of sports for decades and decades. So despite his best efforts, he has not been able to trademark Grand Prix because it's used. Athletics use it, motorcycle racing uses it, other sports use the term Grand Prix, so IndyCar can call it a Grand Prix. Formula One is what's trademarked. Well, folks, tomorrow you're, you're heading off to Le Mans and you're going on the train from England. Well, let me tell you, it's a very nice way to travel, as your good friend Joe Saywood would attest to having gone down to Barcelona, and Jason Bright also coming up from Marseille, having had a holiday in Malta, and then using it again, once again the other day, down from Paris. I would love to be on that trip with you, to be able to be running down to the bar at your every whim, bringing you back small bottles of something fizzy for you to enjoy, um, and, a, and a, a lower the cone of silence cigarette mechanism. That would be nice. <laughs> You're a very, a very efficient assistant. You, you, you'll have a great time, I, I swear. It goes so quick. And, you know, you, trains cut through people's lives and backyards in a positive way. You you just get to see some stuff. So, And you come in Le Mans, like, you're, you're right there. If, you, if you've never arrived by train to Le Mans, you couldn't... You know, oh, yeah, no, I did. I came from... From Charles uh, de Gaulle. Airport, yeah, yeah, yeah. Charles de Gaulle, I got the train down to Le Mans last year and back. This year I'm going from London, the new Eurostar terminal in St Pancras, and then, well, broadly speaking, going by Paris down to Le Mans. So it's an efficient way, except from where I am in London, it's a bit of a hassle to actually get to St Pancras. So, you know, flying from Heathrow to Paris... Charles de Gaulle would have been actually more efficient because I'm closer to Heathrow. But there we go. Yeah, perhaps the train so, is fast, the Eurostar is fast. I, and think, the you're gonna, I think you will actually really enjoy uh, that experience. And it'll give you something to talk to, talk to Joe about when you get to the British Grand Prix. Because if yes. you, you too, yeah, Casey Jones, a vertical strike hat specialist, yeah, you love that. Look, I think Le Mans is going to be good. And um, it is setting itself up um, for some pretty interesting stuff in 2014. We saw, well, there was some not so much leaked but distributed information of uh, of Porsche testing the new LMP1 at LMP1 at Weissach, um, uh, and you know the, the constant changes in the balance of performance of cars and this and that. So. Uh, yeah, interesting. And, and Nissan, yeah, once again, um, being able to take con- take control, I suppose, of Garage 56. I, I hope that it doesn't... It appears that it's taken quite a bit of attention away from the current Garage 56, which is the hydrogen cylinder-sided uh, LMP2 chassis. The hydrogen-powered entry that went gone hasn't made it. It withdrew. Oh, Not really? I mean, it was it was never going to work. Did you did you have a look at it? I know. I would be worried to run it, into it. It was different looking, but not in a good way. Not in the Delta Wing way. It was anyway. No, they withdrew a couple of weeks ago, so there is no that. Garage Fifty Six entry this year. 
but yes, Nissan will go back with a Garage 56 entry next year. And um, an interesting concept. It's going to be hard to know how you describe it, but shorthand, primaric, primarily electric power. It won't be entirely. It's going to be a variation on the petrol electric hybrid theme, but a different way. It'll be different from um, how Toyota is doing it um, with their LMP1 car, and obviously different from Audi because there's a, a diesel. Um, but also that just on that note, that one is using like a, 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 a um, <coughs> excuse me a flybridge system. One's using supercapacitors. So there mm-hmm. are there are three or four different. Um, uh, alternate technologies, and also there's uh, 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 Lord Drayson has got a different technology running there, which I think he's going to be part of Formula E and things like that, uh, in uh, which becomes uh, an FIA championship in 2014. All sorts of very very interesting things coming up, I think, in the next in the next year, and charging mechanisms through induction mats or. Mm. Well, we'll find out all about what the Nissan electric race car is all about on um, Friday night Australian time. They're going to announce details at Le Mans, (coughs) Friday morning Le Mans time. And they put out a teaser video, which you may have seen. And, you know, the tagline is electrifying Le Mans. And there's a little hint in there during the video of what it's about with they flash up this logo that's, well, I don't know, I read it as Zeod. Z E O D, but the E is a stylized E, looking like a you know a power power point or a power plug. Um, so we'll find out more about it. I doubt if we'll see the actual vehicle, but we'll get to know. It. I I gather that this um, sports car that they're going to run as the Garage 56 entry next year will actually be running later in the year in Japan testing. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, that makes and sense. And in, in International Paulie actually is is been in London there this week. Uh, Pretty much, and, and has been spending a couple of a couple of days with some some uh, crowded professionals to come up with some 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 clever stuff. So, and uh, of course, you know, it's all embargoed, but it, it will be revealed in the next few days. It's all pretty cool, isn't it? I, I think Le Mans on the verge of a new golden era um, with Porsche coming in, and it's always big news when Porsche comes back to Le Mans, you know, as an outright contender, um, and they'll. Porsche being there will probably drag other manufacturers and Toyota presumably unless they get absolutely caned again will come back. I think Audi will stay in for at least a couple of years even though Porsche and Audi are both part of the VW. Um, the big bosses there are quite happy for them to duke it out for a while. Um, you've got Nissan coming in with another innovative concept. Um, Renault's hovering around. Looks like they're going to get more and more involved with their Alpine brand which they're reviving for production cars in a um, joint venture with Caterham. And there's talk of other manufacturers, you know, looking serious at Le Mans in the future. You know, Jaguar has been making noises about maybe coming back. And I'm hearing, have been for some time, hearing um, some pretty strong whispers about Ford uh, making a big comeback to sports car racing. And if that happened, it would probably be around 2015, 16, um, to coincide with the, what would it be, the 50th anniversary of um, Ford's Le Mans victory with the GT40 in 1966. Yeah, OK. So that's one to look out for. So, yeah. you know, sports car racing, which gives manufacturers a lot more leeway to try innovative technical concepts and play around with um, alternative technologies, you know, it's, it's attracting the attention of, manu- of motor manufacturers, particularly for, with the new rules from next year, which is basically just says, look, this is how much fuel you've got to use, what sort of engine and capacity and everything else you use, and what sort of, um, you know, hybrid style or, you know, um, curve systems you use is up to you. So that's, that's attracting the attention of manufacturers because it has some relevance to road cars, whereas, you know, Formula One has and continues to struggle in that area to being relevant. Yeah, quite so. Um, I, I think that, that people are, have a disconnect at the moment with, with F1, even though the racing is quite interesting as a result of the tyres. But, you know, you know, it goes back to the, you know, certainly it's sort of a case of I can just write a cheque, but, you know, what races on Sunday sells on Monday. And, um, yeah, sports car racing is definitely going to be making a resurgence. And you mentioned Jaguar, but um, you should also 
uh, note that whilst it hasn't made its track debut, with the GT3 category specification becoming probably the, the most uh, prolific um, uh, category in that you can pretty much take a car from anywhere and, and bump it, move it all the way around the world and race it. Uh, Bentley have, have, have put their foot forward and, and have been doing some stuff, so I'd imagine you'll see them turning up next year as well. So really premium brands, and I think that's that's what Le Mans's always been about. So if you're going to see Bentley, you're going to see Jaguar, you, you know, I probably can't be far away before you're going to see Mercedes in there as well in, in the GT category. And the GT category is a really hot field this year. You've got uh, uh, Dodge Viper with their ALMS SRT program have, um, have had a, an, an invitation to be there with their two cars, which have done particularly well in the few races that, uh, that they have uh, have have done in, in America. So that's sort of good. Um, again, balance of performances all over the place. But nonetheless, you know, you've got to be there at the end of 24 hours. And we've seen time and time again, folks, that, you know, you can be pee nowhere on the first lap half an hour in or be in the garage to do a gearbox change and you still come back and win the damn thing. And, the, you know, the history, was it's more of a sprint race, certainly at the, at the top end. Um, it, it, people can still win. You know, by being half an hour in the garage, there's very, very few times that you ever see uh, a, a car that's not in a garage for an uh, extended period of time, even if it might be a scheduled service of, of, of 15 minutes. In, in P2, no, all privateer teams, 22 of them, I think 14, 15, perhaps even 16 teams, I think it's 15, that are Nissan-powered, um, LMP2 cars, so a lot of teams, and including Caterham, which have come in saying, look, this is a really perfect battlefield for us to be able to enjoy um, the driving our brand there. We, we know we can't compete against factory cars, so we don't want to do LMP1. Maybe we might do that in, in the future. Um, and, and, yeah, and GT is looking good. Um, our, our old mate, or, or my old mate, I don't know if you like him much, much uh, Alan Simonson is looking pretty good there, having set some damn good times um, in the 95 uh, Aston Martin, Vantage and GTM. In fact, fastest until Jamie Campbell Walker uh, uh, picked that towards the end. But that was a BOP issue and really needed to be done. So it, it, that is a bit of a joke. And then you got... Um, Mr. Bright, who's uh, probably the only person in the Southern Hemisphere that's managed to jag some Venezuelan money um, to give him a drive. But uh, I, he'll go good there, and he's no, you know, when you, people might say, oh, he's only a V8 supercar driver. He drove a Persia. Hello. Jason knows lots of cars, you know, from, from Indy Lights to punting un, 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 difficult panels uh, front-engine cars around the street circuits of Adelaide. He, he's a good performer. And uh, without a doubt, I would say, folks, that uh, he would be one of the key assets that appears that Brad Jones Racing have managed to unlock the potential of the car of the future, whereas other teams have not. Mm. Yeah, no, I think Brady's played a significant role in... Um bring that team up to the front and with Car of the Future they've got the kit of components together more cleverly and more effectively than anyone else except perhaps well not perhaps except Red Bull Racing Australia AAA um, Bright of course I think he's competing in the GTE AM probably a good chance there he's one of three Aussies of course competing at Le Mans this weekend, well, four if you count honorary Aussies, Alan Simonson, but there's also Ryan Briscoe, who's in the LMP2 class with Mario, Mario, uh, Mario Marino Franchitti, and who's their other teammate? Uh, it is... Bob Tucker? No. Uh, anyway, other bloke. Squeak, and... squeak, 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 Stuart, squeak, squeak. No, it's not Stuart Little here. No. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, they're in the um, Honda-backed Acura, or well, maybe they're calling it a Honda Acura. these days. Um, and John Martin, too, who used to race in uh, A1GP. 
he's in uh, one of the LMP2 entries as well. So three or three and a half Aussies in the race, um, which will add a little extra interest for me while I'm there. There we go. And then I finish up my travels at the British Grand Prix the following weekend, which after the Canadian Grand Prix, it'll be interesting to see how they go back on a fast circuit and whether they're still moaning about the tyres. And by then, well, in fact, tomorrow, actually, we'll know. The uh, FIA International Tribunal will be um, sitting tomorrow to hear these, well, for better term, charges against Mercedes and Pirelli about... um, breaking the testing rules by um, trialling some prototype 2014 tyres using the latest Mercedes Formula One car. You've obviously all heard all about the big to-do that's caused. So the tribunal will be meeting tomorrow and presumably they'll make a decision and we'll know tomorrow about what's happening and whether Mercedes are going to receive some sort of sanction or penalty or fine. I don't know what the FIA can do to Pirelli because they're not actually competing in the sport as such. They're it's a supplier. It, it, it just, don't you think, it just ends up making a mockery of the whole sport, you know. It's just he said, she said, all this sort of stuff. It's all just bullshit, really, isn't it? Well, it's potentially embarrassing for the FIA because, by all accounts, it was their technical department, for what a better term, that actually told the Mercedes-Benz Formula One team, that it would be okay for this test for them to run the current car, which, you know, seemed unusual, but given that, you know, there's this basic moratorium on testing with current generation cars, um, so they could be in a bit of an embarrassing position by one of their departments having authorised Mercedes to use the current car, but we'll see how it all pans out. It's certainly Red Bull Racing were on the rev limit over it, and they were the ones who essentially protested, you know, with the support of Ferrari, um, who were also peripherally involved for a while, but until they were cleared because they supplied a 2011 car to Pirelli and that was deemed to be all right. So that's been the talk of Formula One, but rumbling along and under the surface of the course is still, you know, the future of Mark Webber, whether he will stay at Red Bull Racing, whether they want him to stay, whether he'll go somewhere else in Formula One, whether he'll retire or whether... It's been long rumoured he'll take a big offer and um, head up or be one of the lead drivers in Porsche's sports car program next year. That will be a topic of discussion at Silverstone at the end of next week, I'm sure. I think uh, Alan Jones, you know, for, for for what it's worth, came up with a very succinct comment on uh, the, the coverage one night saying, Ross Braun knows what he's doing. I don't think he would have been the guy that would have sent them out for a test day if they didn't have the paperwork in place. It it, it, it makes no sense. And, and you know, that uh, straight straight shooter. Uh, well, you would think so, but obviously there's some case to answer because it's the FIA has seen fit to send the matter to, <coughs> excuse me, to the, their international tribunal. So... Someone seems to think there's a case to answer. But so. it also generates media interest, does it not? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, Formula One, of course, loves nothing that more than not only controversy, but something that smacks of a conspiracy um, and, you know, intrigue. You know, the whole paddock is always involved in intrigue. So there are suspicions and um, about this whole business that uh, fuels the rumour-mongering in the Formula 1 paddock, so they're loving it, the sport's loving it. And it does generate coverage, you're right. So, Le Mans, we'll see what happens. In fact, it's uh, it's 7.50pm here um, uh, in, in Adelaide on Wednesday. First practice uh, is uh, at 7pm your time. Uh, for two hours, followed by the first qualifying session from 10pm till midnight. And it's probably worth pointing out to the viewers that it doesn't actually get dark till about 10 to 11. And if my... Looking at the sketch, 19 June, with the race falling on the 22nd, which happens to be the summer solstice, you're going to get the most... And usually it's about a week later. Um, 
because they had to move it around for whatever reason. Um, you're going to get the, the best amount of light or the least amount of darkness before you smell those bacon, wafts of bacon. As you, Jason Bright, I have to ask you about that. Say, mate, are you a bacon fan? Because as you come into the Porsche curves, which you've now identified as the trickiest piece of track you've ever had to drive, but challenging, and, a, and he'll be a guy that'll, that'll be up for it. Say, are you a bacon fan? Because if you are, stop wafting or don't do that stint well that's a, a large part of the huge British crowd that turns up for the race cooking their breakfast in the morning but yes I hadn't thought about that that we're, we're racing on the longest day of the year in well in the northern hemisphere the longest day it'll be your shortest day of course <laughs> I can't wait to move on from that yeah so there we go so what that's the racing world wrapped up What's happening in the tech world, Johnny? Well, actually, before we get on to tech, I mean, it appears the Swedish the Swedish taxi's back. Oh, but, Volvo and V8 supercars, yes. Yes, yes, and how could we forget that? I think that's I think that's pretty cool because to me that the the the, the X Rickard Rydell BTCC station wagon estate, as they call it, was a bit of a a bit of a weapon over here. I think in the hands of Tony Scott, wasn't it? Boy, I think. Yeah, I think Brocky had a go at it as well. <laughs> and I think it ran in that big. It was you know Volvo entered it first in the British Touring Car Championship. And a bunch of people had a go at running in the side of it. You know when when you get a, a station wagon, if you run in the side of it, you can get a big dent, a, d- mm-hmm. a dingle. Yeah. It was never very competitive, but it certainly attracted a lot of attention. It was some. Um, big news in Britain and I was working over here at the time um, when TWR, Tom Walkinshaw Racing as it was back then, you know, did the deal with Volvo to run it and they initially went with the wagon, um, didn't become truly competitive Volvo and the BTCC until they switched to the 850 sedan and then ultimately the S40 and that's when they actually but it, won it the British Bathurst. The, wagon, the, 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 the station wagon ran at Bathurst, didn't it? I'm pretty sure it did. Um, I don't think so. Well, it may have um, before Super Touring actually took over the Bathurst 1000 in 97 and 98. Which was the um, S40. It, it may have done one of the support races, you know, in the mid-90s. I wasn't there then, so I don't, I don't remember. But, yeah, it's interesting to have Volvo back. I mean, their involvement really, you know, it, 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 it raises more questions than it does answers. Um, Volvo has a very, very small presence in the Australian market. Extremely small, you know. It's and uh, and folks, it'll barely, be, it's barely over five thousand cars a year. So folks, it'll be a lot smaller can... when you when the Polestar S sixty is one hundred and seven k, and they're only going to make fifty of it. And 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 Toby Hagen's report of the interior shows that he wouldn't even know that it was any different from anything else. So like, that's not cool. Well, a bit like a Subaru WRX used to be. Yeah, you know, yeah, ordinary yeah. interior, but lots of performance. Yeah, it's the road car version, which is it's an experiment. This Polestar edition is being released in Australia first to see how it goes, and then maybe it'll be released worldwide by Volvo. But it's you know, it's good value. I mean, yes, it's what nearly one hundred and ten thousand dollars, but it packs you know the punch that rivals a BMW M3 and and. 250 kilowatt uh, Still, and yeah. 500 so, newton metres. I don't know what the weight is. Pretty savage Volvo as it goes, but, you know, Volvo, they need to... four-wheel drive, yeah. You know, this is a radical way to um, create a new image for Volvo. So they want to present themselves as, you know, having a, you know, well, a sporting edge and also, you know, a premium luxury car, which, you know, there was a time when Volvo were the top-selling luxury brand in Australia, but that's long gone. As I said, it's a multi-million dollar program um, involving Volvo itself, involving Polestar, which is not owned by Volvo, but it's their official performance and racing car partner, and Gary Rogers Motorsport. They're spending, this is a multi-million dollar program for a manufacturer that sells, you know, not a lot more than 5,000 cars a year. So um, it is an expensive way, um, you know, to get 
to get some profile for the brand. So as I said, it, it does uh, raise more questions than it does give answers. But you know, it's good. And that was uh, one. It's working. You know, for what for many reasons, but it's working. It's, it's getting more makes involved in the series, although. We're talking about you know Volvo being the fifth manufacturer or fifth make involved. Um, the future of Ford in V8 supercars is is very doubtful to say the least. You know we still don't know yet whether Ford is going to continue officially by backing Ford Performance Racing, and if they do continue, certainly at a much lower level, if at all. So you know we may be back to four. Well, I suppose even if Ford don't continue, the teams will continue running Falcon. So I suppose yes, we'll have five makes on the grid. Um, and now they're talking about maybe we should be limiting the number of makes involved, um, which is an interesting spin on things that Mark Scaife has been putting about. I would have thought they'd take as many as um, they could have because there's no certainty that manufacturers, you know, will stay involved. You know, Nissan is involved heavily, but that's probably, you know, initially for three years. After that, who knows? Same with Volvo. So I wouldn't be putting a limit on the number of mates involved in the series. I'd be welcoming everyone. So Polestar is to Volvo what AMG, AMG is to Mercedes and M to BMW? I had not heard of it before. It is. It was originally started by Jan Nilsson, Swedish driver. Um, and uh, it was called Flash, Flash Speed or something. Nilsson's the nickname was Flash. Um, yeah, it's an independent organisation, unlike AMG, which is owned by Mercedes, and M, which is owned by BMW. I guess it's sort of more like HSV, in that HSV is heavily aligned with Holden, but it's not, not actually owned by Holden. But it has, you know, it's... it's as and from as, as, is, visual as, is Michel- as is Michelotto with Ferrari or Reiter with Lamborghini. Yeah, that's but- probably... It, it, but what 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 I've not as I said I've not heard of them before. What's the previous history in deliverables in road cars? Um, they've done a couple of lower level Polestar editions of some Volvo models, and but mainly, you know, this is their first serious foray into a a perform a full on performance version of a Volvo road car. Um, mainly, they've been involved in running with factory support entries in the Swedish Touring Car Championship, now the Scandinavian Touring Car Championship, and they even had a foray to the World Touring Car Championship, um, which they decided not to continue. Volvo decided that um, V8 Supercars. So one of their top executives from Sweden says was um, a more interesting um, category for them. So it will be interesting to see how, how they leverage it over on this side of the world particularly, and I mean, you've got the philosophical discussion that's probably not valid anymore, but, you know, there's always the people who ask, well, how how does it work if, you know, there is no Volvo V8 road car anymore? In fact, the engine they're going to base, uses the base, is a 4.4 litre V8 that used to be in um, the S80, no longer produced. Pretty good engine designed by Yamaha. And they're going to... Yeah, because um, Vol- does Yam- Volvo owns Yamaha? Get, you or? can't get Volvo V8 anywhere in the world. And people well, hang, say, well... Hang on a minute. So does Ford owns Volvo, don't they? No. Well, well remember that the Ford Focus that I the RS, has mm. a Volvo, yeah, Volvo T5 engine in it. Yeah. So It's now owned by... Um, oh. It's Chinese-owned Volvo now, Geely. Okay, and what's Yamaha's connection? Uh, they designed the, that engine for Volvo. Yamaha have designed many road car engines over the years. You know, they did, used to do a lot of work for Toyota. Um, they had done some work for Ford back in the 80s with the Taurus Show, SHO. That was originally had a Yamaha design engine. So it's not unusual. Yamaha's designed a lot of engines for a lot of people. And I think they also own, they own Olin shocks, shock absorbers. And perhaps Husqvarna. What, sewing machines? No, dirt bikes. But perhaps <laughs> sewing machines and pianos, because Yamaha's in the pianos. Yeah. Is it uh, funny, who are you saying Yamaha owns Olin's and... 
Uh, Yamaha owns Olin. I don't know. Yes. No, I don't know that. I don't think so. But yeah, they, 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 they do. They don't. Yeah. Olin's don't own Olin's. Anyway, someone, one of the viewers might be able to point, this out, point that out to us. But anyway... Uh, uh, the chat room. The chat room can tell us. Well, folks, last week the Cleverati congregated at Moscone Centre for the 2013 Worldwide Developers Conference that Apple put on and what was revealed, the future of iPhone operating system iOS 7 with its flat design and 10.9, Mac OS 10.9, Sea Lion. Now, that didn't sell uh, to the crowd, so they thought, why why don't we use an analogy from some of the developers and, and the, the, the guys that worked at Cupertino who liked to go for a surf down Half Moon, Half Moon Bay, which is on the coast, viewers, between L.A., and San Francisco, just a little bit north of where Daffy Duck liked to go for a swim. Now, now folks, you're a fan of that beach because you've been there. What's it called? Pismo Beach. Quite so. Quite so. Oh, and, unless, and it's quite easy to get to unless you take a wrong turn at Albuquerque. <laughs> Albuquerque? Yeah. That's absolutely right. But uh, that so, was the scoop on iOS seven. Thumbs up, thumbs down. No, no, I, I, you know, uh, from a usability perspective, initially looks good. People are saying, okay, like you're stealing a UI from Windows and stuff like that. Flat design, da 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 da. But let me tell you this: as a developer, you have got with the biggest change in look and feel and usability since the iPhone was launched, it's a great opportunity for you to become a developer and create something because you every single application out there is going to need to have its user interface updated to make it look like it's an iOS 7 application. So you can come in now and use all the tools and the huge amount of new APIs application programming interfaces to design something out there. So that's cool. I, Apple iBooks moving on to the Mac platform as well. Um, that's cool, which means you, you've increased your audiences quite a bit. And you know, I, I, I just went on... That means you can, presumably, John, that means you can read magazines full size, proper size. On well, you, yeah, you can read them full size. I said, folks, to be fair... Apple iBooks are different from Apple Newsstand. Newsstand is where uh, the where the, the magazine technology is delivered, and that's another store again from iBooks. But yes, no, of course it is. It's only, about. it's only limited by the it's only <laughs> limited by the screen size. But look, stand by viewers, because coming up soon will be an evening with folks on how to clean your George Foreman. And when he comes back, and it'll be cold, he'll be in the right mood for it. You'll get all the snaps and snarls and the burnt fingers and sizzles of a prawn. I'm not sure what that has to do with the price of fish about what we're discussing, but by the way, too... It, it means, it means that you should launch a book me, about this. What, where is JP? What have you done with him? Have you buried him in the back garden or something? No, it, it, maybe he's, he's, there is no JP. He's, You'd he's, think he'd be gone. here for that. He's gone. He's, 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 How can he not be there for the penultimate edition? He's just... Mate, it's, and you it's, haven't explained to me, why is this second last ever Radio Hot Lap? Because the, the, the JP has no communicate, not interested, just like gone away, run away to hide in the bushes, have to buy a new house, and that's it, and not allowed out. But why is that... Why is that? The death knell for Radio Hotlap. Well, folks, you know, it comes a time in everyone's life where they have to make a, a decision to go on or not, and it appears that the original co-host 
has run to the run to the to the to the long Nissan Altima production shed with no no sign of exit in the sky, and one must let him go. And with that, right. time so to what's going to happen? So is it, you're going to, are we coming back in a different shape? We'll just just curl up and die. We're just turned off. Oh, that's very sad. Well, well, I'll let you contemplate a possible solution between here and episode 250, which will be a wrap-up of Le Mans, and also the, the excellent bus trip from St Leonard's to Balmoral Beach. Okay. Hmm. Well, I'll have to be there for the final episode then, won't I? What will happen to you afterwards? You'll I'm have, very concerned. You'll now. have to put your thinking cap on. Because clearly, there's. there's you know, but, you know, it's people cast, get, up, it's people, cast a pall over everything now. People, just... people, get, people get tired and old, and, and, and their priorities change. And in the case of JP, his priorities have changed. He okay. just hasn't been able to articulate that in any way. And uh, we mm. we would like we'd love to keep Radio Hot Lap going, but you know have to work out how that works. Well, viewers, let us know what you think and what you want to do to help us keep Radio Hot Lap going. Oh, they'll be on the phone viciously. A popular uprising. We'll have a popular uprising. Yeah, we're not going to do a crusher poll. Hey, Radio we? Hot Lap. We're not going to do a crusher poll. I, don't think I have faith in the viewers. The viewers will rally and save Radio Hot Lab. I don't. Come on. <laughs> yeah. I don't think. Well, maybe Clive Palmer. My mate Clive. Now, I went to see Clive this morning down at, uh, at uh, the, Crown, the Crown Hotel, whatever it is in town. What is it? What's that? Opposite the Mantra. What's Crown, that? Uh, Crown Plaza. Yeah, Crown Plaza. Clive's a funny bloke. I like Clive. I'm voting for Clive for Prime Minister. He's quirky and he's got lots of money, but that doesn't matter. The fact is, he's humorous and I think he's got the best, you know, the, the, the people's best interests at heart. Folks, it's going to be pretty hard for you coming down, back down here in a couple of weeks' time after the British Grand Prix because you're going to hear, well, let me just say this, that I, and you know where that's coming from. The redhead with it's the gay man. It's a poor choice that we're faced with in this election, as we were in the last election. So someone like Clive Palmer could be an interesting alternative, although I really don't think he's the man to lead the country. The problem is, you know, while the idea of a, businessman running the country has appeal and you'd think someone like him or Malcolm Turnbull for that point of view from from that standpoint. Well Malcolm's you know, been very would, quiet. Would okay. be good to have in charge, unfortunately, and I stress unfortunately, you cannot run a country like you can run a business. It's got too much bureaucracy. But someone like Palmer or as Malcolm Turnbull's found to cut through the you know, the layers of red tape and bureaucracy, it's just impossible. So it's a nice idea, but I'm not sure that it would actually work. But, folks, you say that Clive Palmer can't run the country like a business, but can the country be run under the current guise that it has been? Well, as I said, you know, the choice at this election is a very poor choice. Um, you've got one party, the government being led by an unelectable leader. The country's has lost co total faith in Julia Gillard. Not Although, that she was ever elected. No, well, she wasn't. That's quite right. And there's still the nonsense going on in the background of whether Kevin Rudd will, you know... Zip. ..be put in her place again to, as a last gasp, last gasp effort to... To, to save the election. Or probably... Malcolm Turnbull will come in at the last minute and turf Tony out to get his ears pinned. Mm. We're still probably looking, you know, even if those changes happen, you're still probably looking at a hung parliament again. 
No, I don't think so. It'll be a liberal. It'll be a liberal parliament. Not if not if Rudd is the leader. There's, you know, and certainly not if I don't. I don't see Turnbull taking over from Abbott at the last minute. But if Rudd in the next week or so he does become the leader still, again yeah. of the Labor Party and, and defect and becomes prime minister, in effect, um, he could salvage it. But it, the, the best outlook that I can determine is it would be a hung parliament again. But otherwise, if they go to the polls with Julie Gillard as leader, it'll be a coalition landslide and we're stuck with Tony Abbott. Um, yeah, folks, I, please, I don't want you to go on too much about that because I don't want you giving away what goes on after 2.50. You know, I, it's almost starting to sound like not so late line. So could we just, you know, just perhaps... Sorry, doing a Tony Jones, was I? Uh, yeah, and, and I have to say, Tony, you are the best in the, in, in, in the game. And, uh, and I do like you a lot about doing that. But can you not give away anything? Because perhaps we might have to do... And you are looking a little bit political tonight there with your V-neck top on. Sort of, oh, no, no, yes, yes, it was your swastika on the... So there we go. All right, well, I'm glad you found a new political friend in Clive Palmer. He has an interesting history and he's certainly yeah, controversial. Yeah, and I, 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 I found a friend in him. Yeah, he's very happy with him a while back. He was chatty. He was chatty. I could have a good chat with him. And, uh, and I did say, listen, if you're going to do announcements, could you do them after lunch so we could have a few more drinks prior? And he goes, it would be more suitable, wouldn't it? This political comment, written, authorised and spoken by Jay Hart, somewhere in Adelaide. I'll leave it to you to no. start off. Oh, have you got any Not food? That, no. Have you got any food notes? Anything food? Barbecue-ness? You've been in... You've been in bar... Come on. You, you fuck all barbecues and you've been yeah, in Austin. I barbecue. I mean... Come on, I, I want a barbecue story. Pulled pork. <laughs> that's, that's what they call it. That's another term it's for like, it's barbecue like, pork and it's just, meat. It's like pork, yeah. pork string, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it's all right. Is it? It's, it's not to die for. Yeah, I know. It gets caught in your teeth. Seriously. But they love it down there, so... You can't avoid it, but you, you end up getting it at the Indianapolis 500 as well. What's the best dish you've had since you've been away? Come on, you must have gone, oh, that was even the potatoes were good or the something. You must have had uh, well, Actually, it was a couple of the dinners we had at Mike Brudenell's place in Detroit. We, on one of the rare nights when we could sit outside on their deck and have the barbecue going, we just had... Um, Tenderloin steak and roast potatoes and you know the usual sort of stuff and it was it was really nice you know simple fare but done well so there we go well on, on that note John you've got to get going I must get going so viewers you've just been watching listening to Radio Hot Lap. Episode 249. The penultimate edition. So you've just been listening to, or you've just missed, Radio Hot Lab. Good night.